would you join with me in 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 13. I had these verses um, ready on Thursday night, Thursday evening, um, and since then, I've added a few more. So some of you are like, I gotta get the verses. Where's that verse? The verses are a gift. They're not always a given. So, But I will refer to all of the verses because you didn't come here to hear Jake or Rick or anybody else. We came here to hear from the Lord. So with that, in 1 John chapter 5, we'll start at verse 13. Let's read through the whole rest of chapter 5. John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked asked from him. He shall ask, and God will for him Give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Interesting. There's at least one spot where you read this and you go, whoa, what a change of direction, John. Where are you going with this? Really? Spirit of the living God, where are you taking John? Why, why do we end with verse 21? Why doesn't it end with verse 20? But there's a couple other portions in this section that might leave you kind of quizzical, questioning. And maybe as, as less open with this, I don't know where all of us are at. <clears throat> but God does. But I do live in this world with you. And... I've got my own fair share of struggles and trials and difficulties and heartaches, and there are a lot in this world. Let me just just start with this. How is your confidence this morning? How's your confidence? Here in verse 13, let's read this one more time. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're taking notes, first point is confidence in identity and life. Why does John write this? Well, let me back up. What things is John referring to? At first, I thought, oh man, John, we just took weeks to cover the letter, and it's been weeks since we were in this letter. How am I gonna sum up all of your letter? He's not speaking specifically in reference to everything that he has written in 1 John. He's referring to what he wrote immediately before this. So would you look up at verse 11? John says, and the testimony is this. Verse 13, he says, these things I have written to you 
What things? The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Pause for a second. God has given us eternal life. How do we know for sure? Because I know for myself as a teen, there were times <laughs> I gave my life to Jesus when I was six. And I didn't exactly have a story of rags to riches, okay? It wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll at the age of six. So I didn't have this radical transformation in my lifestyle. But going from six to 16, plenty of bumpy spots. And there were times where I, I genuinely questioned, am I saved? How do I know? And as we've read, what does he say? Verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Well, I've sinned. Am I born again? Am I saved? 1 John 5, 9 tells us how we can know for sure. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. If your heart condemns you, look to Christ. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. God didn't come testifying to me based on what I thought and how I felt. He came witnessing to me, my heart, based on who his son is, what his son has done. First John is a letter, but it's also a treatise defining true light, true life, true love. And there are so many spirits, so many voices competing for our attention, more now than ever. Ever since, you know, the advent of things like social media, and now we've got these great little doodads. We can listen to voices all the time, nonstop. We can listen to voices as we go to sleep. We can schedule so when we wake up, we're listening to voices. And if you feel awkward or anxious because it's too quiet, you can put on another voice. There's so much competing for our attention. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, literally wanting to have their itchy ears scratched. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. How many teachers, I just wanna put this out here, how many teachers are you listening to and why? What's the goal? What's the motivation? Now, if you're new here, even if you're not new, as I was reminded this morning, you're not, Rick. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, he's gonna be back this Wednesday, so don't worry. But whose testimony are we listening to? Whose teaching are we listening to? How many testimonies and teachings are we listening to? Some come trying to corrupt our faith in Jesus with blatant lies. Some come by tantalizing our intellect, while others come with empty sensationalism to massage the soul. There's a little catch I got from my brother Les. Not here to massage the soul. A lot of us knowingly, usually unknowingly, want someone to massage the soul, do things that bring comfort to how I feel and what I think. And there are plenty of voices who would love to come do that. But whose testimony are we listening to? Whose teaching are we seeking? 
if we're seeking anyone else others than Christ, it's going to have a degradation on our confidence. Only one witness is true and real. John says it over and over. He says it again here. God's witness, who is Jesus the Christ. 1 John 2.22, who's the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Not whoever confesses the bridge, not whoever confesses the church, not whoever confesses fill in the blank. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It has to be your confidence, my confidence, has to be rooted in Christ alone. We can encourage each other in our confidence, but our encouragement should be to encourage each other in Christ. Let me ask another kind of simple, maybe obvious answer, but think about it as I ask it. Are you personally convinced of who Jesus is? Are you personally convinced of what Jesus has done for you personally? Don't trust in him because he's a historical figure. That, that has been ruled out like, uh, that's obvious. Even the, the most staunch atheists will say, yes, Jesus of Nazareth is a historical figure. That's not the question. The question is, who do you say that he is? As Jesus questioned his own, posed that question to his own apostles. Personally to you, do you believe in who Jesus is for you? Do you trust him personally with your life. See, let me just qualify this. Since we live in an age of, we've tried to redefine everything, there's no concept of anything anymore. To believe in Jesus is not to believe that he is a real person or was a real person. To believe in Jesus is to believe in his name. Do you guys see that in verse 13? These things I've written to you. Who? To you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? Our confidence and our security cannot, and it won't, be found in who we are. Now, I'm saying some very obvious things, but in the years I've been in youth ministry, I say it to our students. Um, we've had plenty of students who come through, stellar athletes, incredible GPAs, like, I didn't even know. I, I found this out when I went to high school. Apparently, you can get above a 4.0. Like, there's perfection and there's above perfection, which, to a student like me, just made me more upset, you know. <clears throat> and I, I had a friend in high school who was the epitome of perfection. Perfect athlete, perfect student. Everybody knew his name. You know, quintessential, like, perfect kid. And he, he was driven, so driven. And he strived for success in every way, shape, and form. And I remember a year after, a year into college, I went down to Disneyland with some friends. First week of December, perfect week to go because all the kids in the LA school district aren't released. So you go to Disneyland all to yourself. It's awesome. But we met up with this old high school friend of mine. He just went down the tubes. He burned himself out trying to succeed, trying to achieve. Now, I am not promoting laziness. 
which was my problem in high school. At least when it came to academics. But I remember being shocked when I saw him. Um, he had dropped out of a Christian university after a year, and he was now modeling as an underwear model for Abercrombie and Fitch. And I'm like, what in the world happened to you? Where was his confidence? We've been promoting performance and presentation for so many generations. And really, it's part of our human nature. Whose approval are you seeking, though? John writes these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which we can be, will be, may be saved. There is no other name. People aren't going to show up to heaven and God's gonna ask, did you believe in Jake? Did you believe in Rick's teaching? Did you believe in my son? Did you trust him and take him at his name? 1 John 5.11 makes it clear where true confidence is found. Ultimate confidence, ultimate confidence can only be found in God, in who he is, in what he does. Confidence is found in God, not in us. God's confidence also, what does he say here, makes it a pretty strong implication. It's a free gift. If you're here this morning and you're lacking confidence, take his confidence. He gives it freely. He wants all of us to have it. I don't like to watch my own kids walk in shame, walk confused, walk intimidated or trepidatious. I don't like to see that. It makes me sad. It frustrates me. Sometimes, you know, I get frustrated. I'm like, come on, Judah, don't be afraid. And he's like, ooh. God doesn't want us to be walking around with our heads down. He doesn't want us to be pounding our chests either. Either one is an act of pride. If it's, oh, woe is me, notice the focus. It's on you. It's on me. It's not on God. God's confidence is experienced personally in a relationship with Jesus. It's not in a relationship with this book. This book was given to us by the one who wants a relationship with us. John 10.10, 10, the thief, Jesus said, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. By the way, side note, this thief, if you don't know, is Satan, a.k.a. he's called the God of this age. <clears throat> so the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, that's all his game. And if you checkbox on either one of those, look out, you're in for a world of hurt because your confidence is in your desires, your eyes, your flesh, boastful pride of life. I am really more and more sick and tired of sports. I used to be a football enthusiast, which is an understatement. Still love the game, right, Jim? Yoo-hoo! Love it. But the game has turned into a game of charades to me. It's like gone are the days where guys could just play as a team and collectively as one accomplish a goal. Now everybody's bragging and beating their chests and doing a dance for doing their job. Jesus says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The one who seeks to deceive us with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Jesus says, though, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Jesus says, I came that they may have life abundantly. First of all, that word life, I'm not gonna get it into the Greek, but we have a serious misunderstanding, and my name's on that list, of what life really is. And when Jesus says, have it abundantly, he's not like, here's, you know, here's a glass full. If you were here months back when Rick was teaching through John chapter 14 through 16, 17, <coughs> he was expounding, he gave us a visual demonstration of what life in Christ looks like, what it means to be baptized in the spirit. It's an overabundance. It's not just putting your glass under the faucet and it runs over. It's a life submerged, baptized in Christ, clear glass in Christ. He's the vessel we're in, and it, the, the pitcher's full of water. You put the glass in the pitcher, it fills up with water, and you get the spout running. So it's under a faucet at the same time. And the interesting thing is, is people who walk like that walk with confidence. And they walk with confidence because they walk by faith. Hebrews eleven six. It's impossible to please him, God, without faith. Faith is the substance of things unseen, the conviction. Let me, let me just turn there. It's not, in, it's not up there if you're wondering. Look at Hebrews 11. Chapter 11, verse one. Now, faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for, expected, the conviction, the evidence of things not seen. And when you walk in the power of Christ, you walk in his confidence. So when people see your superabundant life, they don't see you. They might see the outline of you. You put a clear glass in a clear pitcher and it's full of water that's boiling over the top or spilling over the top. You can see the glass, but not real clearly. The glass is submerged and it's the thing inside the pitcher. Our lives are hid in Christ. That verse is not up there either. Our lives are hid in Christ. You're protected. You're kept. Verse 18 of 1 John 5, we know that no one who sins is born of God, or no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, protects him. Do you walk in your day-to-day -day life knowing that God, that Jesus keeps you, protects you? Here's another verse that's not up there. Philippians 4, 7. Paul talks about, if you have anxious thoughts, that applies to us more now than ever. All of you who are anxious, come to him with prayer, supplication, thanksgiving in your hearts, and he will guard your hearts and minds in who? Christ Jesus. I can't guard myself. I can't barely feed myself. That was a joke. Deb's like, really, bro? <laughs> we need Jesus. See, we live under this spell. We live under this delusion that <clears throat> we're self-sufficient, independent individuals who can take care of ourselves. That's a lie. And the devil would love for you to believe that. True life, eternal life is found in Jesus John's number one motivation here for writing this letter to the church was to encourage believers in Jesus. So if you're here this morning, let me just stop. 
and you haven't personally surrendered your life to Jesus, you haven't yielded your life to him, you haven't trusted in who he is and what he's done on the cross, then enjoy from the sidelines as we as a body of Christ talk about what Jesus is saying to us through his word. This is offered to you, anyone in here who doesn't know Jesus. But this is specific to the church. That they have every reason for confidence of eternal life. And I've already said it. What is eternal life? Go ahead and flip over with me to Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 15. Luke 12, 15. Jesus said to them, beware and be on your guard. There's that word, guard. Against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about life <clears throat> as to what you will eat, nor for your body what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Skip down to verse 29. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying do not be anxious for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your children, for your father, excuse me, has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Life, true living, isn't earthly success. I shared this with a young man I met this week, reminded him of Robin Williams. Speaking to a crowd here, pretty much everybody knows who I'm talking about. That guy was a picture of success. Very famous, very wealthy, very well liked by very many people and advanced in years, not as a teen, not as a kid. In his 60s, he took his own life. He died of a broken heart because he had lived a life of, Randy will like this, Ecclesiastes, all his vanity. He realized he lived the American success dream and he got to the end and he realizes as he's towards the end of his life, what do I have? See, I have a family that loves me, plenty of people, friends, fans, but when I die, I don't get to take that with me. What's gonna happen to me? What is life? 
Once you find yourself on the seashore collecting seashells, you start to think, <clears throat> what was the point of everything I did? If it was for you, it will be dead and gone, or you will be dead and gone, and it will go into someone else's hands. What is true life? Jesus paints a very plain, vivid picture here in Luke 12. True life is Jesus. John 4, 13, he's speaking with that woman at the well. He tells her, he is life. So those who have Jesus experience and enjoy God's kingdom. See, he says, don't worry about, <clears throat> I'm gonna paraphrase here, don't worry about earthly things. Your father knows that you need them. If he takes care of the birds of the air, the, the, the flowers of the field, how much more worthwhile and valuable are you to him? Let me say something right now, and I'm glad it's on live stream. I hope someone hears this that might be going through YouTube, not meaning to hear this. People are not animals. People were made in the image of God. I love animals. Grew up basically with a mini farm inside the house. Love animals. But God makes a clear distinction between animals and people. We're not evolved from animals because we never were animals. But it's interesting, as we try to find our identity in the animal kingdom, what happens? We act like animals. Why do so many people lack confidence? Because they're trying to find meaning in and a part of God. Anything that's not a part of God. Anything that doesn't have to do with Jesus. I'm beating this drum because there are a lot of folks in the church who are floundering because without even realizing it, they're trying to find their confidence in someone or something else. That doesn't mean we won't have heartache. Jesus said, you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. That one's not up there either. Man, you guys are getting all kinds of free ones. I should say we are. I'm getting it too. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This world is dark. It's so sad. And it's getting darker and sadder by the moment. So what's the point? What hope do we have? Jesus. Life begins with him. It doesn't end with him. It begins with him. <clears throat> I believe part of the reason Christians lack confidence is because they, they misunderstand God's blessings and how they work. We believe part of the promise, part of the time. Proverbs 10, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. That's been one that I, I've struggled with. Not that verse, but this pattern of thinking. I gotta say my prayer just right because, oh, you know, something might be taken ambiguously. God might not know what I mean. And you've seen the shows and the movies, right? People making wishes. I wish for this. And they get that and more than what they expected. God doesn't play games. I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but when you pray to the Lord, he knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows what you're asking for. Let me get back to this. Eternal life is full of God's blessings. And eternal life doesn't just happen in the next. It happens the moment you give your life to Jesus. You, experience, you start to experience God's blessings now, not later. They start now and they carry on through forever. And he doesn't add sorrow to them. 
Does anyone know, this isn't rhetorical, what's the number one identity Jesus gives God throughout the Gospels? When he talks about God, how does he refer to him? Father. Do we understand what that means? I'm not trying to bring him down to our level. I, I, I believe he wants us to see him for who he is. The idea of a father was given to us. It's not something we invented. It's not a, a construct of society as much as people would like to make that out. Being a father comes from him. Who we are comes from him. He's a good father. He doesn't give curses to those who ask for blessings. Now we're gonna get to that in a second. Well, I've asked him for this and I haven't seen it come true. Hang on a second. I wanna make this point. Do not confuse eternal life with eternal existence because I've heard a lot of people, usually younger people who go, if I give my life to Jesus, I'm gonna live forever? That sounds exhausting. I don't wanna live like this forever. You're not. This is not the life. And that's the point. Your best life is not now. Your best life begins now, but it doesn't begin and, and it's not defined by now. It's defined by him. What we have was written so that we who believe in Jesus can have absolute confidence that we possess eternal life. Romans 8 talks about this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in where? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not in my 401k, I don't have one not in savings, not in, name it. All the things that we do to try and shore up success and security, that's not where confidence comes from. What motivates your life in what you do? Working hard to earn money to get a good living? Not bad, but that is not necessarily honorable in God's eyes. What's the point? Are you doing this to shore up security for yourself? That's called idolatry. You're putting your hope of salvation in someone or something other than Christ. That doesn't mean you can't save up. That doesn't mean you can't work hard. That doesn't mean if you own lots of money, you're an evil person. I think that's another lie, okay? I'm not one of those. <gasps> you have lots of money, you need to give it to me. No, no. But for all of us, that includes me, and in America standards, I'm not wealthy, but by the world standards, I'm filthy rich. What are we doing with what God's given us? Are we living it for this life? This is not the real life. What we have was written so that we who believe in Jesus can have absolute confidence that we possess eternal life. And I implore us all to be confident in Christ, not arrogant in ourselves. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, not once you go to heaven. Wherever you go now, you can be strong and courageous now because you have the confidence of Christ now. Why was Joshua 1.9 written? Well, Jake, that was spoken to the Israelites. Yes, but 1 Corinthians 10.11 makes it clear it was written for our, our sake that we would know not just their mistakes, but the, but the beauty of relationship between God and his people Israel also. Here's a few questions I wanna ask. Number one, have you, first of all, received God's confidence in Jesus Christ? Gotta start there. Number two, 
If you have, are you trusting it and living it? That's a question for you to consider and ponder with the Lord one-on-one. Because you and I can give the Bible answer to each other. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Let's get real honest and real with him personally. And number three, and I think this applies to all of us or most of us, where and why do you not live with Christ's confidence? What causes you to waver in your confidence in Christ? Some of you might go, well, as at this point, I'm realizing a lot of my confidence isn't in Christ. Okay, there's a start. Where do you put your confidence? As believers in Jesus, where and why do you not live with Christ's confidence? Food for thought. Skip down, or Continue on with me to verse 14. He says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, Whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. This is another really hard one. But here's your second point, confidence in prayer. But you're not gonna have confidence in prayer without confidence in Christ. And without confidence in Christ, you're not gonna have confidence in life. It all has to come back through Jesus. Our confidence in Jesus grants us confidence to ask God for Anything, he says anything. In the Greek, it means anything. Now, some of us go, ah, Jake, uh -uh, ah, you're leaving something out. According to his will, that's the catch. What does that mean? What is God's will? First of all, let's clear up what prayer is not. Prayer is not magic. It's not magic. I say that because, and I have made this mistake myself, without even realizing it. We wanna go to someone, will you pray for me? I don't need a pastor or a priest to pray for me. I want to be prayed for though and prayed with because Jesus says, if any of you, two or three of you ask anything, again, in my name, it will be granted. He loves it when his children come collectively to him. Loves it. He wants us to live that way. But oftentimes we treat people in our lives like, oh, they've got more power in their prayer. And without even realizing it, we treat them like wizards and mages. Sounds like sorcery to me. That's not who Christ is. That's not what faith in the Lord is. Prayer is not magic. In Acts 8, 14 through 24, we see a man who didn't understand prayer or the Holy Spirit. Simon the Magician. I won't read it for sake of time, but check it out on your own. Secondly, what prayer is not, it's not a means to an end. And we treat it like that all the time. <clears throat> prayer doesn't give us power to bend or appease God to perform our wills and our desires. That's not what prayer is about. James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Jesus isn't a genie to grant my wishes. Ancient Romans, and, and Jesus refers to this. I'll read it in a second. They followed strict formulas in prayer to get what they wanted. You had to repeat this prayer 
and there were specific prayers to specific gods in the Roman pantheon, and you had to read it in a certain way, and you had to be exact in order, in repetition. It, you had to, you know, you, you gotta do everything perfect, because if you don't, ooh, you know, well, the Roman gods are like people. They had made God in their image. So what do people like to do? They like to manipulate and control people to their will to control their environment to get what they want. Well, that's how the gods were to the Romans. Prayer is not about us. Prayer is about aligning our will with God's, not the other way around. That's why he says, pray in the name. He says, those of you who believe in the name. Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, Pharisees, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. I have done that one a lot. Truly I say to you, they have their full reward. But when you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. I've done that one too. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Of course, we would go, then why am I praying to him? Pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed, hallowed, holy, is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, his will. When we pray, we seek to align ourselves with him so that we can pray what he desires. God's gonna give you what he wants, <laughs> makes sense. And you're like, well, that seems really selfish. Well, it's either that or we pray to get what we want. Who, who's selfish in the picture? And who's God? We pray to align ourselves with his will. And here's the great part. His will is to bless his children. He adds no sorrow to his blessing. Lastly, we can confidently ask him for anything when we live and obey his word. Flip over a couple chapters to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verse 18. Let me just say it again. We can ask him confidently for anything when we're living and obeying his word. <clears throat> I didn't say be perfect. We can't be perfect. But it's a daily lifestyle. You're seeking to live for him. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, I'm sorry, that's chapter two. Chapter three, verse 18 Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. But John doesn't stop there. 
he says, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Confident prayers come by obeying Christ's commands. Jesus said in John 6, 29, when he said, there's a bread that is eternal. Do the work of your father. And they asked him, how do we get this bread so that we'll never hunger? What work must we work? And he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in Jesus. Has to start there. And again in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. When we are living in his will, according to his word, we will pray prayers in his will, in his name, for his kingdom come. And the beautiful thing is, he promises to give us the desires of our heart. By the way, that passage isn't up there, but a lot of you know it. He'll give you the desires of your heart if you seek him. The implication is he gives us the desires of our hearts because our desire is his heart. And here's this next point. Confidence is confirmed keeping Christ's commands. I realize so much of my confusion in life, especially when I was younger, was because I wasn't confident in his word. Let me say that point again. Confidence, it's a mouthful, is confirmed keeping Christ's commands. Look at verse 16 with me. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not to death. There is a sin to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not to to death. If you're like, how come you didn't read the italicized parts? Because that's they put those in for English reading context, but they're not literally there. This seems like a sudden change of subject, but this is consistent. What we read in verses 16 through 17 is consistent with the previous part because it's about praying still. And it's praying for prayers to be favorably heard. So wait a minute, though. Are you telling me that some Christians will die from sin but not in sin? Yes. He says that. By the way, the word brother is referring to believers. John doesn't use that word to refer to common humanity. Secondly, regarding brothers who die from sin, and when I say brothers, it means brothers and sisters. Let's just make that clear because there's a lot of confusion in our world about that. I'm gonna repeat what Rick says. If I gotta be the bride, you gotta be the bro. So we're all one in Christ. This isn't just any sin. It's overt sin because it's visible. It's bold. Because what does he say? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, you gotta see it. This isn't hidden in the dark. Thirdly, it's not a mistake. It's a habitual practice of sin because unfortunately, it's not a sin, it's sinning. The word literally is, if we see, if anyone sees his brother sinning, committing a sin, sinning, present indicative, 
continuous tense. Sinning currently and continuing to sin. It's a lifestyle. There's a lifestyle here of sin. I won't have us turn to Acts chapter five, but in Acts chapter five, verses one through 11, we read about a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> they bald face. I used to say bold face. It's actually bald face. Lied to the Holy Spirit. Not just to brothers and sisters, to the Holy Spirit. And they dropped on the spot. People go, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. He's all about judgment. I believe in the New Testament God. He's all about love and forgiveness, for sure. But it's not like consequences go out the window. And God killed Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody else. And fear fell on the people of God. Not terror, but a holy reverence. Remember who it is that's in charge. Remember who it is you surrendered your life to. Don't lie to God. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Don't lie to God. This is similar to Achan's sin in Joshua 7. We just read that. What happened to him and his family? They died. You cannot keep sin hidden. It will manifest itself. 1 Corinthians 11, 26 through 30, Paul is addressing the believers in Corinth. He says that some of you have become sick. Some of you have even gone to sleep, died. Why? Because they're taking communion in an unworthy manner. We must live with reverence towards God and deeply honor Christ's sacrifice. This is not trivial. This isn't just going through the motions. That just might be juice and a cracker, but what it represents is massive. It, when I was reading this, it made me consider People, hear me out. I'm gonna give a qualification to this. Those who were suffering illness. I don't know. Nobody else knew Ananias and Sapphira had lied. Only God did. They died. Taking communion in an unworthy manner. People were sick. Point is, spiritual dishonor leads to dishonor of our bodies. We see that actually spoken about in Romans 1, 18 through 32. They give up God, <clears throat> And they live spiritual lives in abject rebellion to God. And as a result, their bodies end up becoming dishonored. It's interesting to me. That being said, I'm also not saying if you're sick, that's because you're living in sin. I know that one all too well myself also. My dad's been sick my whole life. People came, prayed, anointed him with oil, and he continued being sick. And there were people who wrote him off, looked down on him, and thought, you've got hidden sin Otherwise, you'd be better. Why? Because I prayed for you. Again, let me go back to the old point. Prayer isn't magic. But we would do well, and I've taken some introspection in my life looking at this. It's interesting, the connection between physical well-being, spiritual well-being. But let's be clear. As he says here in verse 17, all sin is equally unrighteous. Not all sin is equal in consequence, but all sin is equally unrighteous. But what does John say our responsibility is? Verse 16, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, 
He shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. Our responsibility is prayer. It's not to pick up a stone and condemn someone. It's not making hasty judgment. It's not to condemn. It's not to hold contempt against someone. It's to pray for them. James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And here's the last part. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Righteous, someone living a holy life wholly devoted to God's word, living by what he has said. It's really, I don't have time to continue in this, but it's pretty profound. But is that all we do? Remember, we're called to love sacrificially for one another. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, meekness. That's humility each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What's the greatest law? The greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God. And the second one is like it. They're inextricably bound. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. If I was Jesus, I'd have been done with Peter after what he did, but not Jesus. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to restore. If you catch a brother or sister in sin, your heart should be burdened with compassion to help restore them, not to condemn them. That's self-righteous, and that's sin. And therefore, that's why he says, be careful in Galatians 6, 2. Look to yourself also so that you will not be tempted. We don't condemn, we restore. Love bears with each other, Romans 15, 1. And before we go to confront them in humility for the sake of restoring them, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, we pray. I tend to pray last of all, not first of all. I don't know about you, but for much of my life and still to this day, I find myself trying to figure it out instead of going to the Father. Pray first, not last. Seek him first. Seek his will. Ask for his counsel. We've been seeing that in the book of Joshua. What happened when Israel got ahead of God? Bad things happened. So before you go to talk with our brother or sister who you know, you see committing sin, you go make sure your heart is right before the Lord. Otherwise, you might be in for a real surprise, a real kick in the pants. You've gotta do it in humility. So much of John's letter to the church is about love, not feelings. I feel, I feel love, but it's a righteous love. If you go through the book of Romans, we see righteousness over and over and over. It's not stoic, you know, holier than thou. That's not what righteousness is. It's pure a pure love, a blameless love. And I've heard it said to me, you know, when you really take time to love someone, you can, you're given the opportunity to speak some awfully hard things into their life. 
But if I got someone coming to me who has not invested in a relationship with me, pointing out my faults and failures, I'm a lot less apt to hear what they have to say. We have to do it in humility. We have to pray in the name of God. We have to pray in his heart. And we have to pray first of all, not last of all. Imagine how much better things would be if we prayed first of all. So let's go back to the elephant in the room here. What is the sin not leading to death? Well, for one, it's confessed sin. Sin that's confessed is cleared and cleansed. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can pull the wool over your eyes and you can pull the wool over mine, but we can't pull it over on God. Hebrews 4, 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. However, the Spirit compels John to write something bold at the end of verse 16. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. God actually says, don't pray for that person. Don't pray for this situation. What? Turn over to Mark 3, verse 28. Mark 3, verse 28. It's not up there if you're looking for it. Mark 3, verse 28. So the question is, what is the sin that leads to death? <clears throat> and why would God not want us to pray? Mark 3, 28. Did I say Mark 3, 28? Yeah, 28. Truly, Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies, abominations, slanders they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus said this because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This is an unrepentant heart. Why doesn't God forgive that person? Because they don't want it. Turn now back to Jeremiah 7. Some of you already are thinking this, which is good where my mind went too. Jeremiah 7, verse 16. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. He t God tells Jeremiah this. As for you, do not pray for this people and do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. There are prayers that God won't hear. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. By the way, I find that, that title, queen of heaven, really curious. Do a little Google search, queen of heaven. You'd be surprised what pops up. That queen of heaven is being lifted up within churches. And queen of heaven, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is referred to in the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. This is strong. He says, do they spite me? Declares the Lord, verse 19. Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place. 
on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Skip down to verse 23. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Here we see a connection between spiritual honor and physical blessing. Some things to consider. Some things to consider. Look at verse 18. Go ahead and go back to 1 John chapter 5. Verse 18. <clears throat> there, he, John is about to give us three we know statements, okay? So for all of you who are know-it-alls, you're gonna love this part. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's your next point. Confident in what we know. You can be confident in what you know. First, we know we're born of God because of the only begotten God. That's Jesus the Christ. He, what does it say? We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. In other words, but he, that being Jesus, who was born of God, keeps him, the one who is born again. But he, oh, yeah, but he who was born of God keeps him, keeps him. Being born again, John 3, verse three, Jesus talks about that. Have you been born again spiritually, a new creature in Christ? But who does the keeping? Jesus does, which is why, again, our confidence has to be in him. Jesus keeps us from living a lifestyle of sin. And if you're like, man, I am living in all kinds of sin, then I would ask you, have you actually been born again? If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is God that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and that at the end, at three days, God raised him back to life, you will be saved. There are many people who pray the prayer, but they don't believe it in their heart. Do you believe it in your heart? Now, let's make another qualification here. It's like, wait, we know that no one who, who is born of God sins? Go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The sin John is talking about in chapter five, I, I know I'm beating a dead horse on this, but so many people are confused on it. I know I was. John's not talking about making sins. All of us sin. If you're married, husbands, you know you sin. Wives, goes both ways. I know people, there have been people who've said, I'm born again, and they take this out of context, and they go, I don't sin anymore. 
That's not what John's talking about. He's talking about a willful, blatant lifestyle of sin. That's what he's talking about. How can you, who died to sin, continue in it more? Paul talks about that in Romans 6. Jesus cleans us up, though, and Jesus keeps us clean. When we live yielded lives to God, you don't have to try and make yourself holy. You either are holy or you're not. You either are born of God or you're not. And if you are born again, it's a process of sanctification. Your spirit, born again like that. Your soul, though, like mine, is in a renewal process, Romans 12, 2. That word renewing literally means it's the picture of doing a renovation. Jesus buys the dilapidated deed on your life, okay? You're a house that's crumbling and about to collapse, but before it does, he died at the right time, and he bought the deed to your house. Then Jesus begins to do an overhaul project, and he goes in, and he starts to clear out the house and retrofit it from the inside out. That is renewal of the mind. That's Romans 12 too. That's sanctification. So if brother, sister, you're here and you're like, oh man, I keep making the mistake. Don't stop. Keep yielding to him. He's renewing your mind. Where's your heart's desire though? See, this is why I'm so thankful I'm not God. And I'm sure you're glad I'm not either. We can't judge each other. We can't condemn. We cannot make a final judgment. This person is a Christian and this one isn't ultimately, within the span of eternity. I'll give you an example. What am I talking about? Frank Turek, an apologist, was at a university, and this gal who was an atheist, clearly hurting, because she was speaking angrily out of her hurt, said, she prefaced her question, so, Frank, you say that you cannot go to heaven unless you believe in Jesus. So, I'm an atheist, and I don't believe that. Are you telling, so, no, then she says, so you're telling me I'm going to hell. And Frank goes, I didn't say that. And then they go back and forth and she's really confused. No, 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 that is what you're saying. You told me I'm going to hell. You are condemning me, which is so funny. She's doing it back to him. And he goes, I'm not saying you're going to hell. I don't know, maybe by the end of this conference, by the end of this lecture, you're gonna give your life to Jesus. And there's some laughter. He says, I don't know where you're going to end up in life. You're, you're clearly not dead yet. So you still got hope which gives me hope. If you have people in your life and you're like, man, they are living filthy like sin. Jesus came to save the worst sinners, and he has. The most evil, vile king of Israel, Manasseh, gave his life to God. Jesus hadn't died yet. I won't get it theologically into this. He turned his life around, which is pretty radical considering the kind of things that that king was doing. Child sacrifice, God can save anybody. I'm gonna quote Corey Ten Boom again. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. That's the power of love. Thank you, Huey Lewis. That's the power of love. True love, righteous love, real love, substantive love, God's love, because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. So we all sin, but being born of God keeps us from living in habitual sin. And we know we're of God, secondly, because we've been raised to new life, Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we've been buried with him, that's Jesus, through baptism into death. Talking about water baptism. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk 
in newness of life. The world, however, look there in verse 19, the world lies in the power of the evil one. The wording describes, when it says lies, the wording describes someone laying down subjugated to Satan. Laying down, totally submissive. And it's unwilling and therefore unable to resist the devil. I've heard this said, I've learned this. God just wants your want to. He just wants your want to. If you want him, he'll do the rest. You just gotta give your want to him. You gotta give your heart to him and keep on. And he'll do the work. He will perfect you. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, not us. Thirdly, because Jesus has given us understanding to know God personally, that's why we can have confidence in what we know. Because Jesus has given us understanding to know God personally. This one came to me this morning. So this verse I'm about to tell you is not up on the screen, the screen either. Confidence gives us great comfort and it's a comfort that is untouchable. I'm not talking about physical comfort. There's a comfort that goes beyond that. Faith in Jesus isn't an obstacle to understanding though. And I have heard this. This is the, this is the culture we live in. You know, Christianity or Christ is your crutch. He's your crutch. You need a crutch. I don't need a crutch. I'm like, well, I hate to break it to you, but you are crippled. You are on the ground right now. The difference between you and me is I recognize I'm crippled and I need Jesus to hold me up. You just haven't gotten there yet, which doesn't make me better than you. I just have confidence. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not laying on my face right now. We have to put our confidence in Jesus. And Jesus unlocks true knowledge. See, it is actually faith in the all-knowing God that unlocks knowledge and understanding. So if you're here and you wanna know the knowledge of God, check out Daniel, a young man, Daniel 1.17. As for these four youths, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams when the wisest men of the earth could not reveal and explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. This young Jewish boy could. Why? Because Daniel lived a life set apart to God. I'll just say this. We, we believe, based on history and timelines, that Daniel was a boy during the rule of Josiah, the king of Israel. And when Josiah came on the throne in Israel, the word of God came back to life in the kingdom. Daniel was raised by parents under a kingdom where God's word was made preeminent. And we see that fruit in his life. See, knowing God personally takes us beyond mere information. God's knowledge is revelation. It's revelatory. 1 John 5, 21, we're gonna end with this. And here's your last point, if you're taking notes. Confidence in covenant. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols. See, I'm gonna sum up First John here a little bit. Not all of it, but a little bit. John wrote this letter to the church to remind them, what does he say? Verse 13, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Don't they already know that? They had people in their ranks or people who had been in the church who had then left who were spreading deceit. They were called Gnostics, which means knowledge. They had lots of knowledge and they were really cunning and deceitful in what they said. They, they didn't deny that Jesus was, was God or they didn't deny that Jesus is the son of God, but then they started to add things to it or take away from the nature of who God is. Mormons believe that Jesus is the son of God. They also believe that Lucifer, AKA Satan is. What? <laughs> There's a big difference. Or some came believing and promoting that Jesus is God, but he came in spirit form. He appeared physically, but he wasn't really physical. Why? Because they had joined heathen philosophy, the Greek philosophy of the time, that the material world is evil. Well, Jesus couldn't be of material, physical substance. That would make him evil. Again, they're leaning to their own understanding. Romans 3, 5 instead of acknowledging God and trusting him with all their heart. They weren't taking God at his word. So there were people in the church who were saying, yeah, Jesus is God, but he didn't actually physically die on the cross. It just appeared that way. Well, if he didn't actually die on the cross, then you and I are still dead to our sins. He had to die a physical death. That's why he took on human flesh. John is writing this letter to a church that is hearing rumors spiritual gossip, you could say. Some people in the church who had been, I believe, elders. Uh-oh, I'm putting myself on the spot here. A shepherd, a pastor, who'd been saying things that are not true with scripture. People's faith was getting rocked, unstabilized. John comes to stabilize their faith with the truth of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. This is what it means to believe in the name. This is what truth is. This is what life is. This is what love is. Don't blend it. Don't blend it with the ways of the world. That's syncretism. You and I see a bumper sticker. It says coexist. Don't do that. Light and darkness have no fellowship with each other. 1 John chapter 1 makes that really clear. John is drawing a line in the proverbial sand to go, this is light, this is darkness. Now, why were people being deceived? Because Satan's really good at it. Satan doesn't come out and go, I'm the boogeyman. Oh, I believe you. He comes as a minister. He comes as an angel of light. Real quick, raise your hand if you've watched the movie series or read the books or both, Lord of the Rings. Come on, raise them. Oh, we got a lot of nerds here, yeah. By the way, there's a YouTube channel, if you don't know, YouTube, Nerd of the Rings, really good. It's like the Cliff Notes. I haven't read The Lord of the Rings. I'm about to just like lower your view of me even further. I've watched all the movies and I watched Nerd of the Rings, they're like Cliff Notes and I'm talking with Cam about it and I go, did you know? And I have all this knowledge about Lord of the Rings. She's like, I didn't know you read it. I didn't. <laughs> I watched a 10 minute video. <laughs> It is really fascinating, but the reason I bring it up is there's a character, many of you, it seems, know, his name's Sauron. And in much of the time, he's depicted as this dark lord, but he didn't get to power because he showed his true colors. He got to power because he was really good at looking, appearing really good. He deceived these people called the Numenorians. 
He actually comes subjugated on this island of these noble men who have been given all these privileges by the elves. I won't get into it. You're like, wow, Jake, you're a really, really big nerd. <laughs> so are you, apparently. So the point is, this Sauron figure starts to, instead of showing his true form, his true colors, he puts on a beautiful form. And he starts to, he goes from being a prisoner to the advisor to the king, Caliphon, I can't remember his name, but he's the king of the Numenorians. And it's under that king that Numenor as a, a civilization drowns in the sea because this Sauron character came presenting himself like light. He looked really beautiful. And if you watch the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and you watch the extended version, they didn't put it ultimately in the final clip, but they debated about whether or not, because it's written in the books, which I haven't read, unfortunately, <laughs> that when Aragorn comes up to the black gates of Mordor and the gates open, Sauron's gaze is looking at him. Sauron comes manifesting himself as this beautiful being again. But fortunately, Aragorn sees through it. John is writing this letter because the liar comes to appeal to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. What are our eyes looking at? When we look at the world and we do it more and more and we fascinate on it and we entertain ourselves in it, it will blur our vision. It will darken our heart. I've said it before, our entertainment is education, more and more so. And John is writing to the brothers and sisters who are being disturbed in their faith because of liars who come with consciences that are seared to show them this is the truth. How do you know? This is what Jesus said. This is God's word. I'm way off my notes. <laughs> Verse 21, he says, guard yourself, yourselves from idols. What does this have to do with what John has been reading or writing? It has everything to do with it. Remember that much of John's letter has taken time, pains to address Antichrist. The Antichrist spirit isn't successful at deceit because it's obviously bad. It's successful because it's subtly evil, mostly good. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such men are false, pro false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, messengers of Christ, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The word guard here in verse 21 is not the same word in verse 18, where it says, but he who was born of God keeps him. Keep and guard here are different words. <clears throat> They're similar in their ultimate end, but the means to, to the end are different. And I'll explain here. <clears throat> in verse 18, the word keep means to protect something. Guard it. It's like a military word. But the word guard in verse 21 is the picture of preservation. You preserve. See, we want to be like guard dogs. No, Jesus is the guard dog. We're little children. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. So what do we do? What does it mean to guard? 1 Peter 2.11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, you are foreigners to this world. If you've been born again, you're not of this world. So 
Remember that, understand that, and live that way. You are aliens. You are strange. Right, Deb? Her and I like birds of a feather. We're strange. It's okay. We're supposed to be different because we're not of this world anymore. Jesus came across really strange because he's not of this world. Peter goes on and says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What did God command Israel not to do entering the land of promise? Deuteronomy 7, verse one. I'm not gonna read it. Deuteronomy 7, one through four. Don't make covenants with the nations you're supposed to drive out. Don't make covenants with them, i.e., don't coexist. Don't mix. Don't intermarry with them. Israel was conquered by kings. I'm sorry. Israel was not conquered by kings. Israel was conquered by the corruption of sin within. That's why Judah fell. Why was Nebuchadnezzar able to do what he did? because they had already fallen inside the city. We know that because before that, the king of Assyria had come down to the kingdom of Judah. And Judah at that time were so dependent on God. They cried out. What did they do? They prayed. And an angel of the Lord came and wiped out Assyria's army, 185,000 warriors, gone in one night. God fights our battles. What do we have to do? Abstain from all wickedness evil, sin. Don't mix. Don't corrupt your heart and your mind with the things of this world. Israel was supposed to be a priestly nation for God, Exodus 19.6. Preserved to bring the world to him, but instead they were polluted by bringing the world into them. We don't save the world by becoming like the world, but by being different, set apart. Idols Idols are anything that appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. 1 John 2.16. So how do we guard ourselves from idols? By keeping ourselves in God's love. Jude 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. How? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. I want to finish by saying this. You are what you eat. If you consume Christ on a daily basis, you'll live with his confidence constantly. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus can't, the Holy Spirit, as I've learned recently, cannot lead us in all truth if we haven't taken time to consume the truth. Lord, I... I ask that your word would be clearly understood this morning, that your heart would be clearly understood and received. Help us to be children of the promise who walk in the confidence of who you are, Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior of the world. You're the King of Israel. You're the light to the nations, not us. We're little lights who get their light from you. I ask, Jesus, that you would, in this dark world, Turn, Lord, stir up our spirits within us to burn brighter for you, to be children who are wholly dependent on you, wholly separated to you, to walk with confidence. You call us your children. Lord, I'm in the playground called the world, and there are lots of bullies, 
but I can tell all the bullies, my dad will beat you up because you, God, you are my father and you're a father to those who believe in the name of your son, Jesus. Help us as a people, as your church, to believe in the name of Jesus, to walk in your truth and to share your truth. Lord, I, I wanna ask a, a prayer. I, I wanna pray, or bless, pray a blessing over our children and over today's fall festival. There is, the gospel is going to be communicated over and over through the trunks and different displays of booze. I ask, Lord, that you would bless our fellowship and that you would bring people who are lost in the darkness into the fellowship of your light, of your Holy Spirit among your children. I thank you for your word and I thank you for everyone here. I pray, Jesus, that you would seal this word to us and expound our understanding on what you have taught us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.